The first chapter I have in my book is called Stand Up Straight With Your Shoulders Back. And it's an injunction to be combative, not least to further your career, let's say, but also to adopt a stance of ready engagement with the world and to reflect that in your posture. I kind of have an affinity for lobsters. Um, this is episode 23 of the Unwise Index. In person. In person. It's coming, happening. Coming at you from New York City. <laughs> NYC, the city that never sleeps. My name is Akshay, joined as always by Monik. What's good, what's good? And we have a special guest. Hello. Krishna. Hello. Very excited for the special guest. K-Dog, Krishna, and I have been friends for five years. We've debated topics for all five of those years, and today we got a really interesting topic. And we needed some conflicting viewpoints to join the cast. The topic is, uh, as some of you, some of you might have heard of the intellectual dark web. What is it? What is it not? Who is a member of it? Who is a premium member of it? <laughs> tier 1, Tier 2. Are we in it? Are we the special clock alert? That, you know. That was established years ago. Literally years ago. Put some um, respect on my name, dude. Yes, exactly. So, we think we'll have some banter throughout this. We wanted to dive, I think, right into the topic because there's going to be plenty to discuss in a lot of directions. I don't think we know where this is going to go. Yeah. So, Monica actually took notes this time. Studied a bit, wrote some notes down, we're watch, well prepared. Watch some videos. Watch a few, quite a few videos. A lot of videos. How'd you prepare for this, Krishna? I prepared, um, I did some, some thinking. <laughs> wow, oh, some yeah, thinking. Nice, now, a lot of thinking. That <laughs> sounds like a joke, but you know. I should have thought of that. <laughs> should have thought to thought. But, uh, <laughs> I, uh, and I did some reading. You know? Nice. Yes. Google the old intellectual dark web. Not that I didn't know what it was already, <laughs> but I wanted to see what society thought it was. You gotta refresh. Yeah. And Wikipedia is always changing, so exactly. I care. So. Actually, I learned and I learned some interesting stuff. There's a, the intellectual dark website. Oh, really? Yeah. Is it just a fan site? It, I think it is a fan site. I couldn't decipher whether anybody associated with it. It seemed like it was a fan site. Okay. But they included many people that I was surprised. They had a, a long list. Yeah. And enjoyably, every time you visit the, the website, it randomizes. The order, so it <laughs> undermines the, the package. How eccentric. Who yes. is this person here? Yes. <laughs> just letting anyone in here know. Yes. Just sneak my name in <laughs> as the web administrator. What we need is we need to build a wall to prevent folks from doing right. <laughs> A wall around the web. It is funny that the intellectual dark web website is not actually on the dark web. But let's break it down. What is the intellectual dark web? Yeah, the intellectual dark web was coined in a New York Times article by Barry Barry Weiss, right? I believe, yeah. um, and it basically is like the collection. I think the the sarcastic phrasing is like it's a collection of people who can now have like rational discourse despite having very different views from one another, right? And I think have also had some amount of like public blow up around some sort of quote unquote you know freedom of speech or censorship or traditionally left leaning out outrage around them, right? I don't know if that's common across every single one of them, but that seems to be like the only commonality I can This is a really interesting question. I was wondering exactly about this as I was viewing the fun people on the intellectual dark website. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering what exactly is in common with all these people. And I think what you said is actually a thing. I think all of them have had some conflict, some very public conflict, and usually from... Uh, somebody basically critiquing them from the left. Yeah. yeah. Um, so even some of these people that themselves are uh, would self-describe as liberal, yeah. um, nonetheless had some sort of fallout with other other liberals. Yeah. In this case. I couldn't actually. I was trying to think of this. I couldn't think of any cases where that, that it happened in the opposite direction. Like they had yeah. some squelching of speech from the far right. Yeah. 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 Well, that was called Nazi Germany, boys. Yeah. <laughs> We can get into that a little bit later. <laughs> but no, I think you're right. Because I mean, like, if we look at the, the characters, the cast of characters here, we got folks who are very much 
left of center, full left, the Weinstein brothers and Heather Hang. Then we have folks, Sam Harris is there, I think. Sam Harris is there as well. We got Majid Nawaz, Ian Hirschioli all on the left. And we got folks on the right like Douglas Murray, uh, Dave Rubin, Christina Hoff Summers. So the political spectrum is pretty fairly represented here, but I don't think we have anyone who's radically progressive yeah, in this debate. I would agree. And that's probably because you know the radically progressive left are usually the folks that are levying the attacks on a lot of these folks. Right. Yeah, I think it's like I think like this is why I mean we can get into this as well. I think why like why Ben Shapiro's membership is a little bit odd. I think it's because like well the consternation he draws from the left is like kind of natural. It's like he has very conservative like straight, straight down the middle viewpoints, and it's like okay, I guess you're a member of like you know you're in the same camp. I've got criticized the same ways, but like you're different in like a different way. Yeah, it feels like, but yeah, I agree with that. So it seems like the, I mean we can talk first about the scale of the IDLB where. The, the idea behind it was this is a direct attack to a mainstream viewpoint or mainstream media outlets because these folks were vilified for espousing a view that did not align with the mainstream. And now the question is, what is actually mainstream? Because when you look at the scope of influence of these folks, it's huge. Right, right. And we're talking about like $15 million, $15 million downloads a month for Ben Shapiro. We got millions of subscribers to Sam Harris, millions of subscribers to the Joe Rogan experience and all these folks where the IDLB spends time with. And the question in my mind is uh, a lot of people are attracted to the IDW because it feels... Subversive. Yeah, it feels subversive, exclusive. And I'm looking at public intellectual debate right now and it seems, is there anyone else here? And are they actually the hegemonic view? And do we have to go even more dark <laughs> to be the actual intellectual dark web? That's what I, well, I mean, what do you guys think about that? I think that's an interesting point. Like, I know, like, that was something that was surprising, I think. Um, I remember, like, there was a lot of, like, discussion around, like, how many followers Joe Rogan has. Because he gets, like, upwards of 10 to 15 million views on YouTube, then order of magnitude or more listeners via his audio podcast. And so, like, if you just put those numbers against, like, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News... It's like in the same ballpark for at least like the podcasts that are popular each week. So I agree with you. There's like a lot. I don't think you'd be judged just by the volume of listeners. Yeah. Um, but it's like it's like who knows about them, I think, is kind of it's like, yeah, I guess there's a lot of people do if there's that many listeners. But like you don't see them on TV screens as you walk around common society. That's true. And it still feels like not a lot of people know a lot of these people. Right. Yeah. But the other idea is like they position themselves as it's kind of last bastion uh, for the primacy of free speech, right? We're going to talk about any topic, anyone's allowed, come on in, let's discuss it. And they assume that everyone in this group is an honest intellectual or has the academic credentials or any credentials to justify their viewpoint. And the struggle I see is if the only consistent thing that brought them together was a vilification from the left of them being attacked for some of their views that went uh, against the, the system writ large, that doesn't mean that the folks that have risen through the top of the IDW are actually the best voices on certain topics. And so if you're trying to position yourself as we are the stalwart, we have the best arguments, the best debating style, the best discussion around topics that are quite relevant to the advancements of human society, well, I don't know if I'm going to get a Brett and Eric Weinstein, not an attack on them, but are they the best intellectuals we can have? Right? That's a fair question. So it might be worth getting into who some of these people are then. Yeah. Um, you got a list here. Checking it twice. Yeah. <laughs> Who, who's a, I mean, we, I think we could probably save Jordan Peterson for maybe a bit further. I mean, we can start there. Yeah. Um, but I think like if I think about who who is the crucible of it, right? So I think like or who is like sort of like the the rather the precursor. It's like it feels like Joe Rogan was there at the very beginning, or at least he, his podcast was sort of the the gravity well for a lot of these people coming together. He was a connector. And Joe Rogan is a really interesting guy. He was like an MMA caster. Was a comedian, actor, had like a lot of different roles. And now just I think. 
I think his podcast was in many ways like prototypical of the IDW, right? It's like anybody could come on that podcast. Um, and I think it was exemplified by like Alex Jones and other people being on that, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's where like a lot of these people um, got more mainstream appeal than they did before. Yeah. Um, but I feel like Joe Rogan was there initially. Sam Harris has obviously been around for a long time in terms of being in the public eye. Yeah. The longest. I mean, you, you could probably give an intro on who Sam Harris is. Yeah, I mean, Sam Harris. I mean, I've been a fan of Sam Harris for a long time. I, I don't agree with his hyper-focus on Islam as an issue for society going forward. I don't agree with his views on racial profiling. But by and large, what I enjoyed about Sam Harris was the guy's ferociousness of intellect. Like, you can put a debate in front of him, and he will be able to dissect that debate incredibly well. And when you pair that with his neuroscience background, and you pair that with his, like, actual understanding of Eastern thought, it's a pretty unique voice. I agree. Like, I think, like, the, like the again, like, the raw mental horsepower he has, plus, like, the experiences of, like, being in India and being in Tibet and stuff like that, I think it's like gives him like a very nuanced view of like the utility of spirituality. Yeah. So I think a lot of like the, the he was part of like the four horsemen, like the atheists. Right. Uh, well, the, the new like, atheists. The new, new atheists. atheists. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was the that was, that was the original sense of precursor to right. You know, right. 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 So it's except like, yeah. they focus their their scope of discussion purely on religion and its impact as a person got a bad in the world. I still miss those debates with Deepak Chopra, dude. <laughs> was like, what about quantum duality? I know this is a sensitive subject for Monica. I know, right? I call him Deep Pockets Chopra. That's his real name. <laughs> Objective versus subjectivity. What does it mean? <laughs> Multiple forms of truth, alternative facts. But, it's all there. So, but out of the New Atheist, which was Sam Harris the only one who is part of like this re- this recent... Um, was that, let's see, the New Atheist were what? Uh, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens... Um, Sometimes Michael Shermer was included, but he kind of fallen through the limelight. Yeah. And then uh, the guy who used to argue a lot with Sam Harris on free will, um, Daniel Dennett. Daniel Dennett, yes. Yeah. 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 He was kind of the, basically the most raw philosopher out of that group. But interestingly, I mean, Chris Richards is dead. Um, yeah. R.I.P., R.I.P. R.I.P. We got to take a sip, dude. We got to yeah. take a sip of the Shiasi we're drinking here for, the for uh, Chris Richards. He's a whiskey for Chris Richards. Oh, well, Shiasi will Excuse us. Yeah. But uh, I don't think I don't think any of the other people besides Sam Harris are typically associated with the intellectual dark web. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know whether that's just because they're not interested in the same issues, or just because they haven't incurred the ire of of people in the same way. Richard yeah. Dawkins. I mean, Dawkins has gotten a lot of heat. I think this Dawkins never used the concept of free speech as a tentpole of his discussions. Right. He was always like using his scientific background to talk about religion, to talk about evolution, and using those theories to combat any sort of dogma or fundamentalism. But he never really spent time thinking about all the other topics these folks talk about. Like what's our how do we pursue purpose in life? How do we think about liberty? How do we think about individualism versus collectivism? How do we think about identity politics? I don't think Dawkins ever said anything had anything to say about that. Not that I can remember. Yeah. So Harris comes from that tradition. Yeah. Um, I think like uh, there, there's members that were like kind of newer, I think on the public stage, like around the same time as like the dark web or like, I, I'd say like in the, in the same span of time came into prominence. Right. So wait, so going chronologically, Ben Shapiro has been around for a while too. Yeah. He was on Breitbart. Um, he's been like a conservative left commentator, Breitbart. left Breitbart. Yeah. Um, like that's a lot of like, you know, his sort of like iconoclastic credentials come from that. It's like, okay, he's no longer in line with Breitbart's main message or whatever. Um, So Ben Shapiro has been around. Um, But, like, there's a whole cast of people who are, like, fairly new, right? So, like, Jordan Peterson has only been on the stage for about two years, less than that. 
um, the Weinstein brothers as well. Like I think Eric Weinstein has been around for a while, but like not really like in the public eye. Yeah. Same with Brett Weinstein. I mean, Brett only came to flame. Uh, came to flame. Came to flame. Only came to fame because of the experience at Evergreen. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which I think he was in the right. Like I think that when we can he, get into that. Well, he, we should, let's let's start with that. So yeah. Brett Weinstein. So somebody. How does somebody? Ride this wave, maybe was 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 contributing to the wave that even the, the fact that there was a wave at all. Um, was it in early twenty seventeen? I forget when it was, but basically the summary is that Evergreen had like a day of absence for minority students to be able to volitionally say I'm going to not show up. You know, sort of as a sign of like, you know, rights that have yet still to be equaled. Yeah. Or like or granted, and like it's like you know it's a show of basically a civil rights demonstration. Solidarity, pretty, yeah. right? Yeah. Solidarity, yeah. yeah. And it's like they decided to reverse it. I believe last year where it said now instead. The day of absence should be that white students should not show up for this day. Yeah. And he wrote like a strongly worded memo. I don't know if his wife did she like sign it or was she? Like, uh, I forgot. I don't she, know whether she signed. I don't know how she got roped into all of this. Exactly. Yeah. I don't quite know. Well, I anyway. think she came to his defense regardless. Okay. You know, yeah. when he, he was attacked, I don't know whether she signed on to his initial letter. Do, do we know if both instances there were it was volitionally determined by the students? Like the, the, the students themselves could decide if they want to participate or not, or is that not the case? Well, no, no. So the first one, it's like the students. Decide whether or not they want to opt out. Right, it's a day of absence. Right, but the, the 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 change on the day of absence for that year was like white students should not show up. Right, is is what I what I was what right. I was presented as. Right. Now my belief is that this isn't like a mandatory thing. It's still right. in some sense like a campus event or something yeah. that if you were just like whatever doing your own thing, yeah. you could say, oh, I overslept the day of absence and <laughs> I'm here or something like that. Yeah. But um, yeah. but. Uh, but I think that that actually got at the heart of the controversy because I, I believe uh, Brett Weinstein was arguing that implicitly you are actually being coercive in a way that you wouldn't have been in, in the reverse case, right? Yeah, like, right. That, exactly. that necessarily like you're kind of compelling people to for like forcibly ruin themselves or become pariahs because yeah. they were the people who are... It's more of an active focal point versus kind of a passive yeah. decision, right? Yeah. Um, I think that was like his main... His, his main point. Yeah. Um, but huge controversy around him writing that memo or like, I guess around the whole event in general. He drew attention to it. Um, it ended up leaving and getting a nice half million dollar settlement from Evergreen. Um, and yeah, he's like now, I guess, like part of the media glitterati, yeah. um, part of the dark web. So who was really oppressed here? He got 500K by doing this. Like <laughs> It took a while to get that. It took a while, I guess, to get it. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. It ended up being a blessing for him than a curse. Yeah, I mean, probably his voice is probably way, way more, more far-reaching than. I mean, Heather Hying, his, his wife, actually came out and said, "Well, you know, the critics can say all they want. Now I have a stage that's far, far more than I ever could have at a college campus." More. <laughs> yeah. it's, like, it's all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan. Weinstein, Brett Weinstein, though. So now that he's on the world stage, yeah. like he's like his his arc is his sort of like his bend is like the class that he is he, that he plays in this group is he's like the biologist, right? He's like the right. evolutionary biologist. Right. So he has some like interesting things to say about like I don't know like memes and like uh, like metaphorical truth and stuff. Yeah. No, I've always treated him as kind of one of the, the folks who confronted the college campus moral panic. Yeah. And how real do we think that is right now? Like one thing I'm trying to determine is a lot of these folks hang their hat on. There is a moral panic and a de- definite attack on the West as we conceptualize it and free speech as we conceptualize it. But what I'm worried is... Specifically in the universities. Specifically in universities, but I, it seems like a lot of them are extrapolating this, right. that this is right. going to be a societal issue that right. is going to undermine all the things we care about. Yeah. And I'm thinking, like, is that true? Like, it feels like that seems an extrapolation and my, that actually might be a panic that is overblown. I would agree with you. Yeah. I think that... Uh, 
to some extent, Weinstein, to a large extent, Jordan Peterson, and some of these other, uh, other people in the intellectual dark web, basically act as if the greatest issue today is the fact that college campuses are like a little bit too, uh, overly liberal. Well, and I, I think, think it's a problem. I think that's reductionist, though, right? I think, like, oh. you're, I think you're right that it's probably an overblown issue, but I think their fear comes from a legitimate place, right? Which is like, are you starting to corrupt, like, are you poisoning the well? Which where people are supposed to go to learn how to think. Like I think there are more. The thing is, they they do dimensionality reduction, right? It's like there are lots of problems with colleges today, right? They're not preparing people for the world. Yeah. Like you're not actually learning how to think. Like there's a liberal bend to it, and they they, they take like the liberal issue, and then they attribute all of the culpability to people who are like left leaning college professors. Yeah. And it's like there might be institutional problems with how college is today, but it's like it feels like yeah they they they've they've taken one wicket, which is like, you know, college professors have an agenda. And it's like certain college professors, they probably all met, have agendas. Yeah. But it's like that isn't the whole reason why the institutional like structure of things might be suboptimal, right? So I think there's like there's like reasonable issues there, but I feel like uh, they're actually like misappropriating the entire issue to like one issue. Well, I mean, there are people who have built out all the like entire ideologies around this being the great problem of the day. In fact, many you know intellectuals, I might use it air quotes, I, I don't know, pseudo intellectuals, I would, I would say. Um, of the alt-right, basically have this belief. They have the belief that there yeah. is like uh, the university system is part of like the cathedral of you know uh, liberal thought or like not, liberal not liberal propaganda, they, propaganda. And they, they don't use the term liberal. They uh, like you know Leftist. cultural Marxism. Yeah, cultural um, Marxism. Yep. And and so there, there's there are these people. There's a, this software engineer who goes by this uh, pseudonym like Mencius Moldbug or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> His actual name is like Curtis Yarvin or something like okay. that. And he was a really popular figure in yeah. the alt-right. Yeah. And he along with other people are like writing these treatises about how like the whole world is being brainwashed by yeah. this like conspiracy of the universities to and I should have gotten a B plus in that class. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. That's the root of yeah. it. Um, and I feel like that's like writ large kind yeah. of the, the, this problem that some of these people are, are speaking to. So some people do believe that this is like the great problem of the day. Yeah. Like the brainwashing of the masses. Right. Um, which I think is I I would probably agree with you all that I think I think maybe that is a bit of an overblown. I think also overestimate frankly like what a university does for I think yeah. most of society. Yeah. yeah. Like a lot, a lot of people go to the I mean maybe in like you know Canada and we'll get to Peterson like people go to college in a more in more in, in higher numbers than they do in the US I don't have those numbers but like here it's like I don't think everybody's going to four year universities and getting indoctrinated it's like a slice of society that's doing right, that right, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I think we lucked out but I think. Um, the time when we all of us went to college at the exact same time, I don't think we, I didn't feel any reverberations of this. Well, we also studied, I studied engineering, you studied biology. Yeah. You studied... I studied, my major was economics. Okay. So you might have actually been more exposed to this. I, mean, I, feel, I did like, my, you know, I took classes in these other departments, but like, I don't think like, maybe I just wasn't seeing it. Yeah. Did you have any like classical Marxists who were studying econ? Almost none. Yeah. I mean, basically the mainstream uh, economics taught at Princeton, I believe most schools, is... Um, it's it's kind of a classical liberalism, yeah. Um, which is to say, like free trade is good. It, um, in general, like decrease regulations and price controls yeah. um, by and large. I mean, there, there's some interesting stuff. I mean, like even um, even like uh, Alan Kruger, who is like a noted Princeton professor, basically did a whole study um, that seems to suggest that that um, minimum wages actually didn't have the market effects that you would normally predict with that kind of mainstream. Um, Perspective on economics, which sure. is to say the effects of um, 
uh, hiking a minimum wage, increasing unemployment, so like uh, kind of in direct proportion. Um, he did a study that said that there wasn't as close a relationship between those two, perhaps suggesting that you could increase minimum wages and not see some of these negative effects that people are are predicting. Mm. So there, there are some people who are um, who take somewhat contrary views there, but by and large, like Marxism is like way out there from what the mainstream yeah. economics being taught. Yeah. yeah. But the, the, the concerning point over here is that, you know, if the IDW bands together and cons consistently solidifies this viewpoint that political correctness is going mad, and any attack at them is like a reaffirmation that political correctness is going mad, what I'm worried about is, you know, this crew uh, does not have, uh, when we think about free speech, when we think about the progressive left, does not have any representation from the far left and progressive left, in my opinion. I agree, yeah. And I, would agree. I think that's a big concern. And the, the other concern there is when you don't have that representation, plus the IDW itself is very amorphous. There's no clear principles or values because they're letting kind of any goddamn person in here based on the website. It's like, what is this going to lead towards? Is this going to continue to be an amorphous, like, swinging group of folks who are just helping folks build their own careers Seems and like get more Patreon like, followers? They're, they're all people with, like, individual aims, right? I think they're yeah. just, like, they, they tend to have conversations with each other. At least that's, how the, like, the present structure, right? It's like, I don't think there, I don't think there is a group-wide aim. Maybe there should be. Um, which, is like, which, which is why I feel like I, I might also, fizzle out. I would also like to rewind one click. I think, yeah. like, even though, like, the co like, I think we might agree that the college campus like uh, diagnosis might be overblown or yeah. might be like misrepresented. Yeah. I do think if you look at places like Twitter, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think, there, I think there's plenty of outrage culture on Twitter that's ridiculous. And it's gotten, I think I've been on Twitter for 10 years, yeah. you know, posting memes and generally enjoying Twitter. <laughs> it's, it's gotten way more fraught, I think, in the last like 18, 24 months. Um, and, and I think that's all sides, right? There's just like a lot of like, just like sort of like you say something, I jump on this and try to prove this about you or assume you're saying this people gang on, and it's like, um, I mean, one permutation of this like that I think is like kind of right down the center is like, if you are a woman or minority on Twitter, it's very easy to get harassed, yes. and very easy to like have like 10, 20, 50 people suddenly show up and like echo one person's like harassing statement, right? Yeah. I think that's just true if you're like any kind of like political bend as well. But see, that's actually a powerful point, because in my mind, it's like, where's our focal point? Is the focal point on the restriction of viewpoint of Weinstein, Eric Weinstein or Peterson? Pearson is doing quite well, right? The, the, the viewpoints that are non-hegemonic, right, are, are usually underrepresented minorities that don't have a particular voice. And if they're harassed, where's the outrage for the folks in the intellectual dark web who are holding the primacy of free speech to say, that is not right, and I will come to their defense? And I see largely none of that. I see primarily a reactionary view of, why are you attacking me? I need to share my views versus wow, there's a lot of viewpoints here that are being attacked and harassed consistently for time immemorial. Why am I not defending those? If you hold free speech to be dear. To give Peterson credit, where I think we might all disagree on other parts of him, I think he does actually tend to do things that throw people for a loop on Twitter yeah. by like actually going after and trying to defend traditionally left people. It might just be to show, oh, like, really? hey, I'm actually like kind of... I'm not I'm as, actually not aware of this. Yeah, he, yeah like, he tends, he tends, he's pretty active on Twitter. Just be like, oh, like he's like, check this out. And it'll be like some like, you know, like... You know, left-leaning, you know, report like policy report or something like that, or somebody who has a like a viewpoint on like social welfare or something done in a certain way. Like he tends to like tweet all over the spectrum on Twitter, um, whereas I think in his in his in his elocution it tends to be like less of that. It tends to be like a little bit more constrained. Yeah, I mean, um, but, but the worst uh, offender, not the worst offender, but one offense of this is even though I love Sam Harris, he's taking a very strict stance to not invite Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, onto the podcast. Oh, really? Yeah, he said wow. I basically his his statement is. 
I think I will not be able to have a real debate with Ta-Nehisi Coates. So let's get into um, Sam Harris. And we run, we run yeah. wine sense. So Sam Harris was part of the New Atheist, yeah, yes. very rational thinker. Is now kind of taking this like focus increasingly, or I think is trying to get out of it on like Islam's ability to coexist with Western thought. Yeah. Ben Affleck thinks he's a racist. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Batman thinks he's a racist. Yeah. Um, I mean, and the, it, Sam Harris's he, he, he struggles. The issue with Sam Harris's dialectical style. And why Peterson, I think, has risen so much faster than him is that Harris views every conversation as I'm in a classroom having a debate, like a Socratic debate with another individual, and there's no performative act in his conversation and argumentative style. Which leaves a lot I, of... I, I, less. I think there's some. He has, like, good rhetorical, like... Well, now I think he's just so... Very creative. angry. Right? No, no, but I think he has good creative analysis. Like, maybe his, like... His, like... His pulse never rises above, like, 48 beats per minute. Yeah. But, like, he has, like, pretty creative analogies and... and That's true. And stuff. That's true. But in terms of, like, the ability to, like, control an audience, I think he's he's not effective at yeah, that. Yeah. Matt Peterson is incredibly effective at sure. the foil towards that. Sure. Um, but, no, I think, I think Sam Harris, for me... Um, I actually think he's he's trying to move away from the IDLB. That's my read from him right now, and he's trying to get back into launch his meditation app. Yeah, launch his meditation app. He's trying to get back into kind of the very unique, distinctive views he had in Western thought, which was, hey, there are things to learn from spirituality that we can apply to day to day life that can cut away at the dogma of religious belief. And I think that he should have go full force in that. Make that your life mission, Sam Harris. Like. Quit getting intermingled with discussing race and identity and gender. But do you agree with that? Because it's like I, I like I like seeing Sam as like he, his mind is like such a finely tuned like rational weapon. I view that it's like I like to see him in contact with others. Like I think like if he's too in his own world, it's like that's great. Like I'll I'll use his meditation app. I'm using it right now. Yeah. Um, not like right this very minute. <laughs> uh, but it's like I like seeing him like in in discourse with other people though. And I think like maybe that's sometimes good. sometimes he does come across with like Islam and stuff as like being like oh I'm doing this again. Yeah, he should probably stay away from subjects that he's like not that interested in retreading. Or retreading, fine. But I, I like seeing him discourse. I think that's that's how he. That's like he's a very impressive in that setting. But my issue with that is like when he tackles those types of arguments and why Peterson is far more effective in those settings is like uh, Harris is pure logos. He's pure logic and reason. Mm-hmm. He's no emotion in his debating style, and I think that hurts when you're trying to move minds in, let's say, religion where. You know, argumenting the the validity of religious text is not going to convince someone who's on the fringe, who's part, who's a Muslim who's on the fringe, or a Christian who's on the fringe. While I think the the, the style of someone like a Deepak or a style of someone like a Peterson actually can. So if he's going to spend his time interacting with folks, trying to convince them of other things, I think just the, the sum totality of the way he converses is not going to be effective to what he wants. And I'm like, I think it could be worse. But there's another aim, though, right? It's not just like I'm trying to convince you of a predisposed set of views. It's like I'm trying to have a... And this is what I think was actually good about... Did you guys watch the Peterson-Harris debates? Um, I watched... The one I sent you. He watched the... I watched that one. Okay, cool. I think as they evolve, they actually get better. Yeah. Um, And I think Douglas Murray does like an interesting job um, moderating versus Brett Weinstein. Yeah. But it's like, I think like... The point is like they they seem to actually be trying to work out issues. Yeah. And so it's like, it's not... Like, I think Sam Harris actually does very well in that sort of setting where it's like, I'm actually trying to probe what you believe or how we could actually reconcile this. Like, it's not just I'm trying to profess something to you. It's like I'm in dialogue. I'm like, you know, it's like really the Socratic kind of dialogue, right, with somebody yeah. else. Yeah. And I feel like if, I don't know if he's interested in that. He seemed to be interested in it. He did for like four sessions. Well, if anything, so. I think because he's able to do that, going back to your point, is if the IDW, because I actually think the IDW is not going to last. I think it's the remnants of the IDW are going to be the tier one players like a Sam Harris, like a Peterson. Yeah. 
I mean, we got to get there before it disappears, guys. Yeah. <laughs> we got to come in. Inch- intellectual, what was it? Intellectual dank web. Dude. Intellectual dank web. That's gonna be. That's gonna be our branding. Fun fact: I saw Sam Harris's doppelganger on the elevator today when I was Ben Stiller. Uh, I saw Ben Stiller today. What? I know. Where I, at? I, it was just. Uh, it was just in meatpacking here in New York. Holy shit! Um, and he was just like he could, he's like he's like very nice, but you could tell I was just like what? <laughs> he was just like, oh hey, how's it going? And I was like, are you? Sa-? I should have said, are you Sam Harris? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, who's that? <laughs> Who'd that be? I liked your dad on Sunday. Yeah. Uh, but maybe that's a good segue into the daddy. Jordan Peterson, dude. Jordan Peterson. <laughs> the daddy. Um, all right. So, Christian, I know you have thoughts on Jordan Peterson. Oh, yeah. Bad. Bad thoughts. <laughs> bad. Bad. Valence, bad. Well, in right. short, actually, I was very interested to hear your description of Jordan Peterson apparently being a frequent uh, tweeter in defense of... Um, of viewpoints that would be very different from his uh, from the from the left side of the spectrum. Well, let's start with who he is. Yeah, yeah. Let's start start with you. So Jordan Peterson came onto the stage. What was it? Twenty sixteen at this point or twenty seventeen? Anyway, he was against Canada's bill called Bill C sixteen, which um, cl- the claim was it compels you to use whatever pronoun or yeah. whatever sort of gender identification that someone chooses. Yeah. Um, and he sort of said, I'm not going to abide by what this legislation says. And it's funny because what I, uh, because this is interesting, the evolution of my thinking on Peterson has changed because when we used to talk about it, I was kind of viscerally against him for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons was this, because when I spent time looking at what the C-16 bill was actually trying to do, he really extrapolated the, the compelling of speech argument. Really what it was trying to do was basically extend basic human right protections to trans identity and trans people under the Canadian human rights law. And there wasn't a clear point of view around you can be jailed or criminalized for not adhering to the the, the pronouns that someone choose that sure. kind of respect their dignity. Uh, and, and the issue I had with him was he was basically, you know, why is this the hill he will die upon? Like, why is he extrapolating? That was the really interesting thing. It's like, little did you know this whole man's worldview is based rests on, on this hill. And you can argue the validity of the hill, yeah. but it's like the thread that's like connected to the iceberg yeah. of like, you know, his entire his entire sort of reason of thought yeah. comes sort of bubbles up in this like little little geyser, and everyone's yeah. just like, "What on earth?" Yeah, and I don't want to spend too much time here because because there's yeah. a lot to talk a about him. But I mean, I think the, the fundamental thing I took issue with initially was, "Wait a minute, that's not really what the bill is saying." And your extrapolation, even if the bill was saying that this is going to lead to totalitarianism, like let's be real, dude. Like we got <laughs> we got the alt right growing. Globally, we have uh, nationalism grow, growing globally. Like, sure. what is actually going to be a threat to s- human flourishing? It's not going to be but, this but, bill. But it's fair to say he was triggered. Like very triggered. Like like, 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 very like, triggered. like this is his thing. Like this, yeah. this is in line with like I think the things again. If you watch, I've had the chance to dive deep into the world of Peterson. It's like this is consistent with what he seems to be obsessed with. What he's sort of like his, his sort of his sphere of thought. So yeah. it's like I don't think it was. You could argue it was overblown, absolutely, but yeah. I don't think it was inconsistent with what he's traditionally been focused on. Agreed. Which is things around speech and the power yeah. of speech, we'll get into all that. But that basically started his his journey. Like, people listened to this and saw him kind of being a really powerful orator in, in front of campus. He produced a couple of YouTube videos, and from then on, it's been like no, a but he had But he had years of YouTube videos that people True. discovered once they saw this video, right? That was the thing. So people all started to see, like, they started to unpack who this person was yeah. to different degrees, different facets of who he was. 
And so I think there were different people that saw different things in him. Some people probably just liked the fact that he was he was supposedly against this bill, or like he, he was supposedly anti anti trans, right? Right. right. And right. Like transphobic. Some people like the fact that like what they what like the things that we'll get into that he actually yeah. has taught for you know what twenty plus years or the things that he espouses. Yeah. And if you only saw that snippet, that's why a lot. Of and people... I think this is part of the confusion around him, right? It's like yeah. what about him do you agree with? Right. What about him do you disagree with? And what have you what have you consumed of his content? Yeah, right? and, and and if you only see that snippet, I mean that's why he's sometimes associated with the alt right because the alt right views this as like he's smacking down SJWs, right? That's his that's his claim to fame, and that's the, their only viewpoint. But he has a lot of other things to say that I think well we can get into it. What else does he have to say? Sure. So where do you want to start? You you assembled the notes, so you can. Yeah. So I mean, uh, so it's like it's hard because he he. It's hard to follow his thought at times, and I just spend a lot of time. Say that again. Yeah. <laughs> oh snap! Um, <laughs> laying it down. There's there's a lot to digest here. So, um, you know, one other component of the, his credentials, and I think it's really important to recognize, is he's been a clinical psychologist for many many years, right? So there's an actual clinical backing behind what he says that no one else in the IDW can make claim to. Which I mean, I yeah, Brett Weinstein is a biologist, but it's a different thing. It's a different thing. And, and yeah. like for me, when I initially was quite against Jordan Peterson, I questioned his motives and his authenticity. But then when I spent time looking at some of his lectures and looking at his background as a clinical psychologist, like the, the work he was doing as a clinical psychologist is not easy work. He's dealing with incredibly tough, tough situations. And you can only use do that as your life's mission if you deeply care about the human condition. So that kind of extinguished the viewpoint that I think you know, is this guy a bad actor? Because uh, initially I actually found his, like, you know, communication style to be negative and that, you know, knowing what he does for a living, I think, influenced that. But what do I like? So I'll start with what I like. So I look at two components in Peterson, Petersonian thought. One is all of his self-help material, right? Nothing of what he's saying is radically new. What he's done is he's rebranded really valuable insights uh, with his clinical psychology background, with his like deep analysis of Jungian psychoanalysis. Well, I think there's a pretty clear like centrality to the self-help quote-unquote stack of things he talks about, which is like, I think someone put it well, it's like, it's pretty much just the link between responsibility and meaning in your life. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, like there's a lot of other layers and I think part of the obfuscation and like the things that can be difficult to unpack is like, I don't know when he's talking on the Darwinian plane, when he's talking on the neuropsychological plane, when he's talking on the met- metaphorical plane. Or like the mythological plane, yeah. Um, like, but he, like, those are all I think in the help self in the help self. It's in the self help sphere. Yeah. Um, in service in the help yeah in the self help <laughs> uh, in, in service of like, hey, if you bear more responsibility and like, there's some amount of like, you know, philosophy around agency and like what it means yeah, to yeah. actually do that. Um, you will have more meaning in your life and meaning, then we can get into like the, the, yeah. the, the psychological side, but it's like yeah. meaning is important because, yeah. and that's a whole different And this topic. is the power because I think like right? he's found a way to recapture these ideas that has resonated and scaled. And the, the, the basic premise is very simple. It's like life is suffering and full of malevolence. That's a common Buddhist trait, right? That's, that's number one. And, and he says, okay, that's true. The next viewpoint is how do we transcend the suffering? Well, we can only transcend the suffering, as you said, via purpose. And the only way we can find purpose is by starting with ourselves. And I'm going to prescribe some behaviors for you to find purpose. Oh, and guess what? Because a lot of people have done that chain, right? You have a lot of self-help uh, help folks making the chain of life is suffering, work on yourself, be better, stand up straight with your shoulders back, right? right. But I think the unique thing about him and why it is stuck is he says, and actually we can solidify these viewpoints and transcend our suffering with real narratives yeah. across time 
that I can deeply explain. I think that's the unique thing he brought to the table was I can solidify the viewpoint of transcending suffering and finding purpose through grand narratives. And those grand narratives are what I'm going to, what's going to influence our behavior. And there's the 12 rules of life. I, I think, think it's that, also, is, that was also maps of meaning, I think. And I think that book, I think, I think the article that Monik shared that you linked him, I think, I think points out some of the more convoluted sections of, so I haven't read the book, but I'm, um, it's at 80% through the lectures. Like he gives like a class uh, on this thing. And it's like, it seems to be like, here's, as far as I can tell, here's like the, the beginning and like where it, where it takes us to like what Monik said. It's like, I, I like, I was learning about like all the atrocities human beings have committed, right? Especially like in the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, there's like the two tent poles he often erects, right? Um, and I thought like, what is the structure of belief that allows you to do that? Like what is, a, what is the structure of belief and how could it allow you to do yeah. such awful things to other human beings? And so it's like neuropsychological bend into what is the structure of belief? Um, and I think there's like, there's a yearning there for like, well, can we transcend the ability to be just like completely awful to each other, right? And so like, is there a correct way of being in the world? Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of like the mythological frame, a lot of what he draws from like his interpretation of what the West quote unquote did correctly versus, you know, the, the Marx, the Marxists or like other schools of thought was like, it was a mode of being mythologically rooted or like patterned over time, which like emphasizes truth and emphasizes like free thinking and the ability to basically self reinvent over time. Yeah. So the, the trope is like the, the, the hierarchy, right? It's yeah. like. And there's a lot of different strands to this, right? It's like, it's like so we talk, what we talked about so far, it's like, how does a hierarchy fit into this? Yeah. Right? And it's like, well, that's kind of a tangential thing. It's like, well, reality of life is like, you're going to have hierarchy. So it's not, it's not bad to want to climb them. It's well, like this is part the, of it. Right? right. We're going to get into like, so yeah, I mean, that, well, it's like Christian, like, yeah, okay. yeah. So, I mean, so far based on that, so like that, that's one bucket. I think of one bucket of domain is his reconfiguring uh, of, the, the focus of how do you translate suffering a, and find purpose. An archaic revival. An archaic revival. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's your thinking on that? I think that some of the things that y'all point to are admirable. I think it is admirable to try and lift people up, to try, try and connect people to a sense of purpose that might be lost by modernity or that might be lost in a kind of changing ideologies mm. um, uh, of our century or the last century and say, you know, look to the ancients, the, 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 like look to that wisdom. And, and, and I, I actually, I think there's value in the way that he tries to summarize things, you know, 12 rules for life and things like that. Right. right? Um, and even as you said, Monica, like it, it, that this is rooted in a desire to clinically help people who are going through really tough times. Yeah. Um, I think all that is actually well-spirited and, and good. Um, my big issues with Jordan Peterson um, are a couple things. First, I think that, as you were saying before, it can often be hard to follow him, right? Right. It's like, where, like, where, like what are you employing to, to, to say what? Yes. And I think that he actually, in some sense, uses this to wriggle out of the consequences of the things that he's arguing many times. Um, in the Sam Harris debate, yeah. Sam Harris basically tries he tries to ask him a very explicit question about about whether he even believes that Jesus did like perform these miracles as, as, that are presumably the beliefs that uh, underlie anybody who professes to be a Christian. Yeah. And his response is, "Well, it would take you it take me forty hours to get a response. I can't really tell you. You know, it's it's like why would not? And I feel like that is." The case on, on so many things about Jordan Peterson, he he'll constantly go on and on about how people are putting words in his mouth. 
That's because people are trying to extract <laughs> meaning from the things he's saying. He's like, well, it's it's hard to say. <laughs> I have to right. read by volumes of books to get any sort of insight into this. That's, a, I think, a very specific, interesting point because I do, you know, as somebody who I think, I, again, I, I see a lot of value in what he said. I think I'm kind of on that side of the fence. I do, I think, like, the, what I, my cynic, the cynical, the cynic in me is like, is he trying to be fuzzy about the God thing, the God question, because he doesn't want to alienate basically either side? Does he actually have a complex view? Because I could believe that he has a complex view. And like if, you, if you've listened to some of his stuff as we have, it's like, yeah, he has like interesting, metaphorical, like abstract notions of what God could be, what this could be. Sure. Like I could believe you have like maybe not 40 hours, but 20 hours of explanation as to what you think the I, divine I, is. But it's like, are you also just trying to dodge a question yeah. because you don't want to come down on one side of the fence and you have people on both sides. And maybe there's, there's an altruistic mode. Right? I, don't, I don't want to alienate either of these camps. Right, yeah. but maybe it's like, well, I just don't want to be pigeonholed. Yeah, that's that's. I think it's that I don't want to suffer. I mean, maybe this is uncharitable, but I think it's I don't want to suffer the ramifications of some of the things that I'm supposedly advocating for. When I actually think about some of the consequences and they seem repugnant, I don't want to embrace those. So it's not just the God question. The same thing happens with the questions of gender. I mean, yeah. his whole belief system is about how there are these archetypes of chaos and order yeah. and he associates the chaos with the feminine and he associates the, the order with the masculine right. and he subtitles 12 Rules for Life um, an yeah. antidote for chaos. And I think yeah. that I, I agree that it's on it is it invites problematic frames, right? But here's my whole point. It invites problematic frames and then I feel like he reels out of them by saying oh you misinterpreted me but he won't give you a clear interpretation, and I think that's because he has, as you said, I think he actually has complex beliefs that I don't think are coherent. I think he has lots of interesting thoughts, but they don't wrap together into something that is actually... I, would, I think I would draw a distinction. I think there is, I think there, I think there is incoherence, but I think there's also um, a vertebrae. I think there is sort of a spinal cord that okay. goes through them, but I think... Parts, parts, of, parts of the spinal column are like quantum. It's like yeah. it's unclear what it's like. Okay, for this piece, are you like the chaos piece? It's like chaos is not specifically defined. It's like and you and you tend to see this notion where it's like okay, you're willing to go into like the neuropsychological realm when you talk about like one of the things I think is most interesting about what he says about like how you can um, like why there could be a proper way of being in the world yeah. is like this like and like one of the things that if you recently there's lectures like he draws on like Jung and Freud and all those guys a lot, but also like Jean Piaget and like developmental psychologists. And, like, he's like, oh, there's this notion of, like, and I know this is pretty cool, like, and I actually motivated him to look into it more, is, like, of, like, sort of emergent behavior, right? It's like you can start to act out rules before you understand them, right, as a child, yeah. for instance. Um, this idea that you can start to, you can act out things that you're, like, basically, from a Darwinian perspective, like, you're, you're sort of, you're inclined to do before you can, like, art, like lingu linguistically assign reason or motivation for why you're doing them. Sure. And so it's, like, there are times when, like, there's lucid statements made on like again one of the planes which is like Dar darwinian evolutionary whatever there's like a but you're making a you're positing something that could be true because it has evolutionary value sure um but then it like then like like yeah again a couple links in the chain are like up here in like the mythological realm the implicit assumption is that the mythological realm has like captured or somehow linked to what is like useful from like an evolutionary perspective but it's never explicitly said yeah. and um i think like in the lecture i think like to your point around like his speaking style I think in the classroom setting, again, like it was really funny to read, um, like how like it like the transcription of the lecture, but when it was like just like seemed like babbling. But if you listen to it, it actually doesn't sound that way, right? Yeah. It sounds kind of like, and I, the thing is, like I think his archetype from a from a public individual perspective is that of a preacher. 
Like he comes, he comes across <laughs> not even a messianist, <laughs> sure, but like he has like the rhetorical style of a preacher. Yeah, right. And so like the way in which he kind of is drawing from this and like kind of stops like sixty percent of this goes into that. Um, I think that's often done. I, I think that's a valid criticism. Yeah. Um, like because you, you, if you just like you have to kind of get it, it puts the burden on you to listen to a lot more of his stuff. I think or to read a lot more of his stuff to kind of understand what is the universe. Like where are the boundaries, at least in his thought, that he's willing to admit? Um, because just watching one video. Or two videos, like I don't, I, it's like I got this weird cross section. I don't really understand. Like, I mean, where, and where he, he tries to leverage that in a point that I think is interesting, but ultimately I don't think I can accept. Uh, actually, in that same debate with Sam Harris, he basically makes the argument about the Bible, but he could be making this argument about all this work. That see, the tricky thing is you can't point to any claim in the Bible. This is what he says: you can't point to any claim in the Bible and say, "Is this obviously false or true?" You know, if the Bible claims that. Um, that there are 360 days uh, before the Earth fully revolves around the sun. Even that might not be false or true. Yeah. Um, because he he says that you have to look at it as a story. Yeah. And narratives uh, have to be looked. It can't be sliced into parts. Sure. The the twist at the end of the narrative. This is what he claims. Can change everything. Can change everything. Right. <laughs> and this is actually really interesting. It's it's a really interesting idea. Yeah. I, I I'll, I'll concede there. But at the same time, right. what it means is that he never has to commit to anything. He just said, "Oh, you haven't looked at my entire life's work of anything, and thus you don't understand." Well, like the I think the Bible right? is like an interesting. I don't. I, there was like a lot of back and forth there. Um, I think okay. Back to like his core beliefs. Like he draws yeah. a lot of power from like myth. Right? Yes. It's yeah. so like mythological archetypes. We can look to provide wisdom. We should discard with like extreme caution. It's like the Nietzschean reference that he always makes, right? It's like the death of God means that we had to invent our like basically like you 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 abandon these things at your peril, right? And like, only that's all he really points to myth and historical human behavior. Like one narrative that I one story that he pointed to that I thought was a really powerful insight was his view on human sacrifice. Yeah. Where like people used to sacrifice animals and children. And the idea behind that was, I'm going to sacrifice something now so I can get something in the future. And that's the first demonstrated behavior of delayed gratification, which is like the, the foundation of a lot of our day-to-day -day life today. Like, that is a very unique insight. But then he uses that to justify how we should live our lives now and not saying that actually that is summarily wrong. We shouldn't have any human sacrifice. He's like, well, I don't know, because it was useful in the time period. And that's where things get a little murky. Well, I think even if you look at them longitudinally, though, I do wonder. Um, like maps of meaning is like this sort of like fever dream of a book. Yeah, it's like it's absolutely. like it's like revelations in some ways. You could argue it's like, but like twelve rules of life, I think is quite distilled, right? You can argue it's like it's like you know too curt, too arbitrary in some ways. Like the rules themselves, and like it does go into like it veers around. But I think I wonder if it's a reaction and an acknowledgement of the fact that yeah, I, I did spend like ten years trying to write this like theory of everything. Like a Cloud Atlas style book, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm like, maybe just try to write like just the. But, but even the tricky thing, even with twelve rules for life, yeah, I think that there is this space for interpretation that leads to actually some really sinister outcomes hmm. that I think that that he uh, sometimes tries to dodge from. So let me give you an anecdote. Early on in my days of encountering Jordan Peterson, when I was uh, a younger man, <laughs> a young babe in the YouTube videos of Jordan Peterson, um, I uh, came home late one night um, and from hanging out at some bars with friends, and I went to the pizza shop across from my old apartment. And while I'm there, there's this this older man. He's probably in his late thirties, and he's with a group of friends that are all these middle-aged men. Yeah. And he's talking to his friends about. Like, what a phenom Jordan Peterson is. I just overhear this this conversation. He's like, you got to watch this guy. Like, he is like, uh, he's like showing everybody how wrong they are. Um, 
and uh, he's like been so influential to me and all that. And, I was, and my, 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 you know, ears perked up. I was intrigued that this isn't like the standard, you know, 3 a.m. pizza like, yeah, conversation. Kind of conversation. Yeah. But then what he goes on to say is how it's influenced him. And he talks about how one of the biggest things is about like standing up for yourself, yeah. which sounds good. But here's where he goes with it. He, he talks about how his son is in school right now. He's like in high school and how there's this kid at school who annoys his son. Yeah. And how the school wants to say like, oh, you should treat everybody, you know, like people have their own little things and you got to be respectful of, of all the quirks people have. True. Mm-hmm. But how he basically feels like that, like his, his son doing that is a form of submission that he shouldn't give it into. And instead he should embrace some sort of like self-realization of the dominant person he should be. And he literally said the advice he gave his son is, you know what? Like, if, if he annoys you, tell him to stop annoying you. And if he doesn't d- stop doing it, punch him. Well, wait, wait, so, like, wait so this is interesting because that is like, an, uh, uh, that's a direct parallel to the lobster analogy. Like, the lobster yeah. standing up straight is a junction to combat. Exactly. combat. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what I'm getting. Even in 12 Rules for Life, when, when he tries to narrow things down, the first rule, stand up straight with your shoulders back, is, uh, is uh, like a long opining on arguably the virtue of being a dominant person who bullies people when they need to. To realize a hierarchy. But, but, but I think that, I think that to be, I, I, I totally see that point. But I think the thing that he would, I think that, so what is it, like one of the like one of the lectures that's in like the Akira the Don album, and we'll play some of that in the intro and outro here, because um, <laughs> it's great stuff. It's like, he's like, what is it, like, what does it mean the meek shall inherit the earth, right? Like one of the lines he says is like, those who have swords and know how to use them, but keep them sheathed are the ones who will inherit the earth. So it's like, there, there's this line I think where he's like, you should be tough and you should you should be willing to be combative. But I don't think it, I don't think it's fair to say he prescribes violence. I think it's he has fair. literally said that himself. He has literally said he wishes in some cases he could punch. And he said he, he wishes he like, could slap the guy Mishra who wrote that article because he made like a he called somebody yes, his, like his exactly. native. Yeah. Okay. He has. That's different than saying he prescribes violence in his book, though. I think a different. Okay, way. but elaborate on that difference. And, and I think so. Sure. And, yeah. I think he's like you should be. I think. He would probably argue, I would argue, that you there are times for violence, right? Do any of us disagree no. with that? No. I wouldn't disagree with that. Right. And so I think it's like, is he saying you should have a tendency towards violence? Is he encouraging people to be violent where they otherwise would not be violent? And I think that is a murky area, right? Yeah. It's like, I think there is a degree to which it's like, I think, and he, I think it's hard to argue where the line is drawn between like, stand up for yourself and like, where's the line between you and other people, right? Do you like, at what point, I, I think like, in the anecdote you gave, it seems unacceptable that somebody would tell their kid to go punch another kid if you didn't incite violence against the kid. But there's a gradient, like if you recommend that the stand up for himself, and or you say, argue back with this person, but not incite physical violence, then I would actually agree with that. Tangential point here. Yeah. Um, I think a person who gives a really interesting insight into this is a tangential member of the intellectual dark group. Maybe actually a full-fledged member, Jocko Willink. And he actually like oh, yeah. writes. This seal. is like the Navy Seal, like yeah. Navy Seal, like commander guy. But and he gives this like very nuanced meditation when somebody asks him this question on his podcast, like twenty minutes. And he's like, and he comes down. He's like, basically like, but you have to make sure like your son or your like your your, your kid can defend themselves. Right. But you shouldn't you shouldn't take you shouldn't relish in them being a commando sure. in the classroom. Yeah. Right? But the question is, which side of this is Jordan Peterson coming out? Uh, well, I don't think we. I don't think it's clear, right? To your That's point earlier. That's the problem. <laughs> I don't. Well, I, did our self, okay, so is any self help book by by extension that tells you to be more assertive? Doesn't draw the doesn't line and tell you to be more assertive though. Well, I, I've never read the book too. He doesn't tell you to be. Com- he doesn't tell you to be physically combative. But what he is saying, and this is my issue with the, the hierarchy debate, because actually I, I, I resonate quite a bit with the hierarchy conceptual uh, framework generally. But the issue with the hierarchy framework is he's basically saying that 
we can see demonstrated behavior of hierarchies in lobsters, right? His argument for people who don't know is he's basically saying people have conceived that hierarchies are social, human hierarchies are a social construct that can be restricted or improved in multiple ways. But actually, if we look at, let's say, lobsters, lobsters also exist on a hierarchy. When they stand up straight with their shoulders back or they win a fight, they stand up straighter. They're larger. When you hit them with serotonin, they stand up larger as well. And the concept of hierarchies are inevitable. My issue with that argument, though, it's not it, – for, for all of Jordan Peterson's nuance, he uses this really as a crutch because you can use that – concept for any hierarchy no matter how Absolutely. corrupt or broken it actually is well, it it's is. like almost a non sequitur it's like right. uh okay yeah lobsters have hierarchies therefore uh hierarchies are inevitable but wait a minute the hierarchy of inflicting pain on someone else to rise to the hierarchy maybe is something that shouldn't be done but that's, but that's i think that's also part of what he says right which is like he's like but people assume to be the only hierarchy in society is that of a tyrannical patriarchy and he says there are different hierarchies, right? There's hierarchies yes. of competence, there's hierarchies of whatever. Economic, gender. I think the thing stuff. he's arguing is that they're not social constructions at their as a unit, as like a as a as a primal as what am I saying? As a primitive, right? Like like a hierarchy is something that's in, that, that you will tend towards as an evolved creature is basically what he said, right? I don't think he's saying that that and he also makes the case for like and this is where he draws a line between conservatives and liberals that conservatives are good at operating in hierarchies liberals are good at constructing hierarchies he makes this like dichotomous claim sure but he's like and he's like you have to reinvent them oftentimes because they what we talked about earlier they tend towards corruption yeah and he admits that right he admits that but the issue here and this is my main concern with most of peterson thought because i mean going back to kind of the two buckets one bucket is this reframing of improving yourself and treating yourself as a divine individual and transcending suffering. Well, I'd I, say it's like how to act and like what ought you do? What ought you do and backing it up by really interesting narratives that can that solidify each other. And this is what the Sam Harris debate you alluded to a couple times. Like this yeah. is um, the fundamental crux of his thing is like from the world of facts, you can't get the motive force of how to live a life that has meaning in it. Yeah. And, and I he's think, saying yeah. in this mythological, whatever, you can argue how coherent or incoherent it is, that gives you some motive, like that can give you motive force. Yeah. Um, is like, that's like one. And I think that right. search for meaning that uh, using this framework of narrative structure and, and grand narratives is catalytic for folks in their mind and resonates a lot. While Sam Harris takes this moral landscape view that we need to come back to science and reason to justify that. And, you know, we're seeing what plays out to have more resonant effect in the human psyche, and it's definitely Peterson's view. The second bucket, and the bucket I have most concern with Peterson on, uh, and not to discount, because I actually think that first bucket is incredibly valuable and distinct, is what is this dude's political agenda? And that's my main concern with him is that there are a couple of things. Like, one, he puts the, the West as, as you said earlier, Krishna, this cathedral that should never be tarnished. And he says the threat to the West is this... <laughs> Postmodern neo-Marxism. He uses this constantly. Postmodern yeah, yeah, neo-Marxism. Yeah. It's Post the boogeyman. <laughs> it's the boogeyman. He's not, he's not the only person who's called, who, who uses that boogeyman. You want to call it a boogeyman. Yeah, and what yeah. I'm, I'm trying to understand, and then, and then we can talk about the interrelation of postmodern neo-Marxism and his views on hierarchies, but like, sure. the concern I have is, let's break this down. And I'm, I was trying to like wrap my head like, what is actually being conveyed here? So postmodern. Postmodern is a series of thoughts that were bred out of modernist viewpoints, right? And modernist yeah. viewpoints... Largely can, France in the 60s, it's argued. Yeah. And you could say that modernist viewpoints are generally... So postmodernists are skeptical of this. Modernist viewpoints are generally viewpoints that are trying to create grand external theories about reality and, and history and humanity and, and how we should live in, and live in life. And postmodernity is saying, actually, we, uh, there, there's no grand narratives here. And we need to call into question the grand narratives we've built, and we need to be deeply skeptical of them. 
right? We can't use reason to understand fully the world. We need to have multiple different viewpoints. And a lot of the times, the way we build our histories around medicine, for example, there's a component of who was owning power at the time, and they restructure history as a skeptical framework of there's no grand narrative. Then you have neo-Marxism, and you can, you know, I, I'm not a Marxist by any means. I'm a dirty capitalist, but you can conceptualize, <laughs> you can conceptualize Marxism, I guess, as you know, I'm going to understand the grand narrative of the human struggle as a class struggle between workers and capitalists. Like, so you're basically understanding humanity. Well, I think it's also like one of the tentpole features of Marxism and neo-Marxism, at least purportedly, is equality of outcome. Right. Right. It's like it's like a, a society right. like that's engineered to have a quality of outcome. It's sort of the caricature of neo-Marxism. Well, I don't know. I mean, on classical. I, don't, I mean, we can. I don't want to get into a debate on like Marxism because we can go down a rabbit hole there. But I think generally, it's, it's, I don't mean to assign a valence to that. Right. It's like that can just be a thing. Right. It's like you basically want to have everybody who can. Well, I think there's a del- delta between equality sure. of opportunity and quality of outcome. I think a lot of Marxists might say that. By, by framing the human condition in economic terms, we have a higher likelihood of reaching economic, uh, equality of opportunity. And the neo-Marxists would say, well, actually, framing the world as, in economic terms is not sufficient. We need to frame the world in terms of you know, gender and identity and all these other things and put that on top I'd of I'd say that's more of the postmodern thing, though, right? The Marxist thing, I think, is an economic claim. Well, it's a neo-Marxism. Sure. Neo-Marxism, I think, adds on to the economic framework of a class struggle by saying, actually, the class struggle extends past economic terms. The class struggle extends to, you know, throw in anything. Sure. And that's why the two, like, you could argue have been mixed, right? Right. And, and, and my concern with that is, like, it feels on the surface very confusing because if the postmodernists are saying there's actually no way of understanding the human condition via a grand narrative. Sure. And the neo-Marxists are saying, actually, yes, there is. There's, there's ways to understand human condition by economic terms, by uh, the, the identity you have, the race and class you have. It's really hard for me to understand what he's arguing. It feels like he can bucket anything into postmodern neo-Marxism. Like it's like, because it's like the, the both sides. It's like the, the, the so attack I, on grand narratives and then the grand narrative. One itself. thing I would insert is like in that speech we watched from him, him at Oxford, yeah. he does say like, it's not, he's like, it didn't. It's not like it didn't register to me, is what he says, that like these two things don't actually make sense together. Yeah, well, how do you respond? I forget what he said there. Like, he, he's like, he's like, they use like the vestige of like a defunct 19, 20th century philosopher and put it into the corpus of like basically not having a belief system to prop itself up. He's saying, because like, mo- like, like you said, postmodernism's claim was like there is no grand narrative, so it's like, well, what do we do now? Then that's where like the neo Marxism was inserted. But then I think what's it's, interesting about Peterson it's, it's, is it's, like, I think he's a postmodernist. He's basically saying there is a grand narrative. The grand narrative can be understood as in, in how we transcend suffering by looking at historical narratives. I don't think. Well, I don't think that's. What, what, that's. I don't think that's postmodernist. Well, we can get into like yeah, the semantics yeah, yeah, there, yeah. but it's yeah, like, it might be a semantic difference. Yeah. but, but the, uh, I think like really what it is is he's like it's like it's again a Nietzschean thing, right? He's like saying like nihilism bad, and he's yeah. like you should you should not abandon God in like your in your in like the scaffolding of society yeah. because I think it's generally good. I think is like the crux of it, right? He's attributing. The motive force of the universities and of like the intelligentsia on the left to sort of a not quite nihilistic, but like sort of like there is no grand narrative. All that matters is equality of like all that matters is sort of your your what what is the term you use like collectivist viewpoints, right? It's unclear. It doesn't really assign like a clear motive to them, right? Except for like maybe abolish the existing hierarchies, right? The existing structures, like anti. It's like it's it's like it's like anti-establishment, right? Is effectively what he's what he's pinning on the other people. Would we agree with that? Say that again. So he's basically you're saying he's saying, he's saying like the other side, the boogeyman, yeah, are basically trying to destroy the cathedral, right? Yeah, they just, and they don't quite know what they want in place of it. They claim they want equality among all people, yeah, 
But I think he would claim they don't actually know what that looks like. But this is this is where the, the like the, the he doesn't apply the nuance to the other view and strawmans a lot of folks. It's like it's not like they're trying to destroy the entire cathedral. What a lot of a lot of progressive folks and, and folks who want to push progressive politics would say, well, what what we're ad- advocating for is rights and justice for particular groups mm-hmm. because those groups have been unrepresented and have been treated unfairly and unjustly for a long time. And those groups are useful for a basis of political organizing. That's like the concept of identity politics is we have identities that we need to provide justice for. And that's the part of the cathedral that's not working for these groups. Therefore, we should fix that. And I think I, uh, I mean, that's a totally valid claim. Yeah. Right? And that's there's like a, probably half the country that agrees with that. Which is not postmodern. Um, though, which is the, it's like the other things like postmodernists would say, actually, wait a minute, like none of these categories make sense. They're all of them are right. I think we should destabilize all of these categories. <laughs> there's something odd. I think we agree that there's something odd about the coupling of those two things. I yeah. agree that's not postmodern. It's like that's the neo-Marxist side. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, I think what was the claim? Sorry, you said that like the cathedral should not be totally like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think his and this is this goes back to like the again going back up to which levels you're arguing on. It's like the mythological frame is like if you, like what he's seeing from the neo-Marxists or like the postmodern neo-Marxists is like to get to what they want, which is a noble goal, right? Yes. He always says like the left is always always has a valid stance, which is they are on the side of the dis- those dispossessed by hierarchies. Yeah, right. Um, they're willing to compromise in his mind on like basically the keys of the kingdom, which is like in his mind free speech. In his mind, it's like equality of opportunity, right? I think that's what he's basically positing in varying degrees of clarity or in clarity or like non clarity is like they're willing to attack basically the things that will actually allow the world to advance or have promulgated in his mm-hmm. mind That's what you're saying. the most, like the, the cathedral of cathedrals. Yeah. Um, and he's like, good aims, but it will like destroy us all. Is sort of like the, the hyperbolistic, you could argue, like rendition of what he thinks will happen, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, he, if I understand correctly, like interpret like, like C16, like let's go back to the top, yeah, right? Yeah. It's like they have a, they, they want not to hurt people, right? You could yeah. argue this. Or like maybe you wouldn't, right? Like maybe you're saying they, oh, they have like malicious intentions, but like, Positive frame. They want to yeah. like help people, yeah. Yeah. but they're willing to impede free speech, the logos, yeah. to do it. Yeah, and that is like that's like an axiomatic violation. Well, this is the, this is the concern. It's like he. It's this delta of what are the components? What are like the the bricks of this cathedral? That if you remove one of these bricks, the whole cathedral falls apart. And he's treating free speech as the primacy of free speech is. Uh, the, the only corrective factor we have for this cathedral. Right. And any attack on that means that the cathedral will never change. And I think the really radical less will say, fuck that. I don't got time to correct this cathedral. I want to destroy this cathedral and build a better one. Right. Right. And I think he basically says, do you actually want that? Do you actually want that type of device? Enough? Do you well, actually well, want I think, that I think, but, there's, but there's two forms of that, right? Yeah. There's one where it's like, I want to destroy this cathedral, but I'm still preserving free speech in the process. And then there's one where it's like I think the current agenda he would argue is like you're you're anti-establishment, yeah. but you're also willing to put guards and put restrictions on things like free speech. Like you could be basically like a you know you could like be against the current institution and not like want to limit anybody's speech, right? You could say like I'm gonna burn this thing down. Yeah. There are no laws that are gonna prevent any you know like there's no seat like I I don't, I don't care about this stuff. Well, this raises an interesting question, uh, which is why I was so in- intrigued by your comments about Jordan Pearson's. Twitter behavior, mm-hmm. um, which is how he actually oriented himself towards free speech. Yeah. Because I think that the intellectual dark web and Jordan Pearson in particular would like to fashion themselves as the guardians of free speech. Yeah. The people who actually right actually respect that principle as opposed to all the pretenders who use it opportunistically. Yeah. But um, 
But this is something that I've actually wondered about because I've been totally unaware of his Twitter behavior. In the various videos I've watched of his and some of his writings, mm-hmm. I haven't been able to discern a distinction between him and those people who only claim a defense of free speech when it's their speech that's being attacked, but don't stand up for other people. So I was very totally. intrigued to see. And, see and your I, I wonder if part of this is a reaction, right? Part yeah. of this is like, hey, look, I am more cosmopolitan than you think. I have more viewpoints than yeah. you think. Yeah. I'm actually like just by virtue of being a center right person in Canada, probably far left in America. <laughs> it's like he's like, you know, it's just like he's like, hey, look, I endorse this or I think this thing. So I partly and this is like actually this gets into where I actually and I again I the, the first bucket we talked about I think I overwhelmingly think he's doing positive things for lots of people that I meet. Yeah. Um, the the, pro- I, the net positive of that project is undeniable. Right, and I think the thing that I think I would dovetail this part into is I think he is he, he does not do a and I, I think he's he's, he's Ambiguous when it comes to his political stances and his political affiliations in a way that I think it, it does not – it invites a problematic frame, you could argue, right? It's like he basically is willing to go on Fox News and other things and, like, say certain – like, with conversations that have a certain slant to them, yeah. right? He's, he's willing to not disavow certain folks who definitely are alt-light or alt-right. Like, there's sort of this there's, – there's this entertained sort of pluripotency of right. what he's willing to be exposed to and affiliate with that I can't tell if it's, like – I'm just willing to like espouse my views wherever because he's like you know he's 55 years old and he's used to being he's just became a megastar right right it's like he's not like a calculated media personality of like 30 years right yeah so it's like maybe he's just going on Fox News because they like you know again like or like this other channel or Breitbart or whatever sure. I'm not saying he's been on Breitbart I don't know if he has but he's been on conservative publications yeah. that people on the left would take take offense to potentially um, and it's like un- again like what is he actually peddling when it comes to political views I don't think it's clear it's not clear yeah um, like I think there's a definitive like sort of you know, sort of like self-help thoroughfare, but it's like politically, you know, some people said like, there were rumors like, is he going to run for office in Canada? Um, is he trying to like help the conservative party? Um, well, I mean, I think, I think one clear strain of a political agenda is discounting the viewpoint of oppression, right? I think he would re-encapsulate oppression as, yeah, everyone is oppressed uh, and there's no way of changing that. Instead, focus on yourself and the end conclusion of the political agenda is there's real impact right now, day in, day on oppressed groups that we can make movement on. Yet, if he played his political agenda out, I don't think we would. Well, I don't I, know. I, I, don't, I don't know about that, though, right? I think well, it's like, I just don't know if he has actually any refined thoughts on how you would fix those problems. I feel yeah. like that is the most, what you describe, Monik, is a very reasonable, straightforward interpretation of what he says. Remember back to my point earlier, it's always confusing because I feel like sometimes if you're saved to that, then you say, oh, well, that's not exactly what I meant. Yeah. You had to read my 30 other books in order to understand <laughs> exactly what I meant. But, uh, but I feel like it's a very reasonable reading. In fact, that one of these rules yeah. for life is about getting your own house in order before you seek to change the world. Yeah. And I feel like that itself is an admonition to not become an activist if you don't have everything in your own life and perfectly in order. Something I would, I'd be interested in is actually ask you, Monik. Yeah. Think about the context of Healthify. Yeah. If you took that own advice, would Healthify exist? I don't know. Did you feel like your your own house was perfectly in order when Healthify began? Yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> I, and it's interesting because I reflect on Healthify. So for folks who are listening, you know, Christian and I worked at Health work at Healthify. We've been at this for like five years, uh, and I think if I took that advice, set your house in perfect order before you change the world, I'd have to say no. I mean, my house was not in perfect order when we were starting Healthify. And I think that's the truth for, the truth for many people who make immense positive social change. Martin Luther King was an adulterer, you know? Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, you can rattle off a list of people I think and all their huge personal As an absolutist stance to what yeah. you're saying, but I think, again, and you could argue this is part of, like, the amorphousness of his thought, right. but it's like, I don't think that's, I don't think he would argue that, right? It's like, oh, you don't have to, it's like, it's more like... But does that not have courage of convictions? Because it's sort of, it sounds like what he's saying, but is he then like, actually, when you really think about that consequence, I don't want to pin that consequence, even though I advocate things that seems to suggest... Well, no, I think there's a difference between having courage and convictions or not, having, like, sort of a, like, an amorphousness in thought... And trying to distill that down into a book, right? Yeah. It's like there and there's there's axioms, right? There's precepts you can give people, and you can like you know have like footnotes that stretch into the miles if you want. But I think as a general rule, I think it does make sense. What's your favorite rule out of the twelve rules of life? Um, I can't remember most of them. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, what is it? Uh, well, it's like well, actually, I can because of the album, because of the Cure of the Dawn album. Uh, my, my favorite is which is a good album. My favorite is Pet a Cat when you encounter one. Yeah, I like a uh, yeah. I like that actually. Stand up straight with your shoulders back is great. Um, I think um, the what is it like uh, change? Like you can always like. Uh, Basically, like, be a better version of yourself tomorrow versus who you are today. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday. yesterday. Versus I, yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. That, that one is, like, it's just, yeah. like, very simple, right? Yeah, yeah. That's a, there's powerful stuff there. He's, he's been, like, there's, like, just a phenomenological aspect of this as well, which is, like, he's been, like you said, he's been absolutely electric across the world, right? Yeah. And that's, like, just an interesting thing to talk about, right? It's, like, what does that say? Or, like, what, like, you know, it's, like... Well, I, I think he's it's... He's a mind virus. <laughs> like, I think what it says is that people are <laughs> craving purpose... Yeah, meaning. Yeah, and he's found a way to distill it in a way that is like a lightning strike in some people's mind. I think that 100%. is true. Yeah, because because the left doesn't give that. The left doesn't tell you. The left doesn't tell you what to do and how to live your life. The, tell, the left tells you what not to do. The left tells you, hey, don't culturally appropriate. The left yeah. tells you, hey, don't oppress. The left tells you, hey, don't do this, don't do that. But it doesn't tell you what you should be doing, how you should live your life. And in right. fact, the right sometimes does tell you how to do that. Um, they're more bossy. What's up? They're more bossy. Yeah, I guess so. And it's like I managing that, hierarchies. And it, it's sad because I wish uh, the like the progressive left is what I identify with, and I, I wish that they had found a way to build this into their messaging of saying, yes, there is clear beauty in seeking equality of opportunity. There's clear beauty in reducing suffering for other folks, and that's where you find your purpose. But I, that has never been part of the narrative. I I think you're absolutely right there in that there is. A huge hole uh, in terms of uh, giving some, uh, giving people a viscerally powerful sense of purpose in the notion of like modern leftism and and all that means in terms of ethics. I think you're you're totally right. There's a scattered set of things that, that you should do. Yeah. But but there isn't something that, that fills people. There's a second dimension though that I think is related to this, which I also cite as a reason for Jordan Peterson's popularity, which is. A comparative dearth of, to put it in a way that's not harsh, conservative intellectuals. Like, they're way more, like, the whole reason why Jordan Peterson has a problem is because the overwhelming majority but, of academics. But do you think that conservative intellectuals would give the same sort of motive force in bucket one with all this meaning and sort of like the self-help stuff? Like, I don't think that even if there was a healthier cadre of conservative intellectuals, they would speak to the same millions of people on YouTube necessarily, right? Mm, I don't know. I, I, I would actually, I think that that... that, that they might like, for instance, are you familiar with David Brooks? The yeah, kind yeah. Of I mean, David Brooks. Went into, like, I like David Brooks, but I think David Brooks is always like, it was. I don't think it's the same thing necessarily. Really, like his latest book was like the road to character, and it's kind of like a similar thing about how you have to like. I guess maybe it comes out of the fact that all your experiences. In order I guess. To I guess like yeah. The it feels like David Brooks hung up his political ideology. I guess before that, I guess is part of why I never registered. Um, he just feels like he's like he was talking about like Michelangelo and like the meaning of life and stuff. It just felt like very. But very introspective. But, but even beyond that, I mean, there's this, like, classic uh, theme 
in the division between uh, the American left and the American right, where the American right has claimed, like, st stuck a claim to the notion of uh, you yourself by your, your bootstrap. Well, this is the traditionally libertarian, like, yeah. ethos, Yes, right? but my whole point about that is that that is, that is very, lends itself very much to the notion of giving yourself purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I would actually argue that it's not quite as distinctive, that, that, that this is something that, that uh, conservative intellectuals would uh, be drawn towards more, more naturally. Right, right. It's interesting that nobody like yeah, it's, it took a Canadian, uh, you know, sort of like <laughs> clinical psychologist to be able to do it. Like nobody in like the hundreds of millions of people in America yeah. <laughs> who are conservative, like uh, was able to, to birth this like any sort of. I mean, he's course. like the most. It's not like he's the only one, but I feel like I he's think the it's, most there's just like yeah, like on the, on that level, yeah, there's really nobody else. Dude, selling out three thousand person stadiums, yeah, pretty crazy. The O2 Stadium with Sam Harris, that's crazy in, in London. It's the wave. Yeah. The wave. Man, <laughs> Jordan Peterson. Yeah. We have discussed a ton. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there will be more to discuss. There's Just a lot. A, so. I think like his body of work and his views to date and his philosophy on life, I think, is pretty well established in the canon out there, right? Yeah. But I think the interesting thing to watch will be, I think, what we talk about at the end, which is like, what will he do with this fame? Yeah. And where will he try to steal it? Political escapades? Yeah. More books? Other things like that. One of the things that I, I don't think it'll lead to political escapades. That's my prediction. Why do you say that? You hear it? Hear it, hear it. <laughs> you don't think so? No. Um, first off, I'm curious if y'all have just seen any any evidence of himself suggesting that himself rather than people speculating. So there's been I've, there's been articles by his like former colleagues or colleagues that kind of know him like estranged friends who have alluded or even like outright said like he's thought about running for office. Oh yeah, in Canada. Actually, that's extremely powerful. I take back my. <laughs> <laughs> what I was gonna say though was that um, anybody can say anything nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, my read would have been that there tends to be this like distinction. I often think between like the the intellectual and the politician. Right. Um, whereas the intellectual is the the, the critic can and they'll often be like the uh, the voice to speak truth to power or something like that. But right. but but for whatever reason, due to a lack a lack of political dexterity or due mm -hmm. to a lack of motivation. Also because it would narrow your it would it would distill you, right? You would have you would, it be, would. You would be under 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 like action, scrutiny of your action. Exactly. Now you're pinned to things that yeah. <laughs> that can criticize yeah. themselves. It's yeah. a different thing, right? It's yeah. a different thing. He does criticize Justin Trudeau, though, which I think is pretty funny. Yeah. Um, I like Trudeau. He's just he come across as such a cornball, but I think yeah. he has good intentions. <laughs> Trudeau? Yeah. Gets bullied by the Donald a lot. He won the handshake, though. <laughs> no, no, Macron won the handshake, I thought. What? Did Trudeau also win the handshake? Macron was the one who was just like, yeah, I think I'm not going to let go. Trudeau, uh, Trudeau had the handshake where John, uh, <laughs> Donald Trump tried to do, pull the yank. Oh. And then Trudeau, like, held spur. <laughs> You're not pulling the yank on me. I'm hilarious how that actually took media cycles. Like, yeah, <laughs> But it's like, good job, man. You didn't give in to a 72-year-old, out-of-shape dude. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The handshake, man. The, after that brief aside of Jordan Peterson. <laughs> yeah, what is, is there? Um, well, in terms of, like, the inter the intersection of these personalities, right? Yeah. One to stay tuned to. So I think it's worth watching the debates between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris. Yep. That's one thing. Yeah. They all tend to rotate through Joe Rogan's podcast. I was Ezra actually... Pointed out, who was listening to this, thank you for continuing to listen. Mentioned this will be now the third consecutive episode that we mentioned Joe Rogan. So <laughs> yeah. there we go. Uh, and Alex Jones. And Alex Jones. <laughs> this week in Alex Jones, there's no news because he's been silenced from the internet, but maybe next week. Completely deplatformed. We'll talk about that. By me. Yeah, by me. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Y'all already talked about that, didn't you? We yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. Um, we did. Um, but he always tends to pop up again like a ghost. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> what if Alex Jones joined the intellectual dark web? Dude, no, Alex Jones can only join the intellectual dark web. That's yes. why that, that we need to create this. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, here's what I, I mean, that's why I disagree with you because <laughs> basically this would be my, my, my primary issue with um, Alex Jones, Alex Jones, and the formation of, uh, of any sort of web of intellectual is dark or, or dank or whatever you want them. Um, do you have a sense of intellectual integrity? Yeah. And I would argue that Alex Jones doesn't at all. And I feel like that undermines the ability to like seek truth, you know, or to like talk about things in a way that we're trying to collaborate towards some sort of understanding of the world versus trying to maybe say something entertaining. Or something. I can't argue with that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is the but issue with the idea. But he can be our hype. He can be our hype man. He can be our hype man. But this is the idea. You're not part of the thing, but you can you can you can help be our marketing guy. Since yeah. since the, the IDW is amorphous, since they're inviting every goddamn person, and they're not though, right? Christian found the website. Like, I don't think they actually. If you ask anybody here, like, to just be like, okay, spend five minutes and, and assemble a list, I don't think it would be an endless list. It wouldn't be on this list, but I think they would be open to having a conversation with Alex Jones. And sure. I think that they're, they're... I actually don't know about that. Yeah, we don't know. But I mean, Joe Rogan did. And I think yeah. that if if they aren't discerning around who they're inviting to have these quote-unquote intellectual debates, then I think it veers into... This is not a group of intellectuals. This is a group of folks who are really focused on building a movement around in, using social media to drive viewpoints. And it's like, it loses its luster. It yeah. loses yeah. its sophistication. And that could be, I think, it's death. Well, we, I don't know if we did we go down the point of Tanesi Coates and like why Sam Harris decided not to. I wouldn't go in deep there, but yeah. Well, like that's one example. Like, why, why did he decide? Oh, right, not right. To yeah, so, I mean, yeah, so Tanesi Coates wrote this book called Between the World and Me, which is actually a phenomenal book. I've read it three times, and um, you know, Tanesi Coates. I mean, he's he's pretty fatalistic in his viewpoint on race relations in the U.S., but he has lived experience. Like, he's actually felt the pain. Uh, racism in his day-to-day life. Um, so one of his friends got uh, got killed in a, uh, early in life, and that's kind of been his like crusade since from that point on. But he also, just because he's fatalistic and does not think there's a way out, and says, uh, you know, the the world will always be centered around white identity, and therefore I will not be able to have a, a reasonable voice, no matter how hard I try. That whole viewpoint, I think, rubs Sam Harris in a way where he cannot have a debate with him, that he's not willing to listen to reason. I don't think that's fair. Like, he's, I think the point is, like, his, his, he, he puts forth that he's like, because he has this fatalist, he thinks he has a fatalistic viewpoint, and so I can't, I can't move him, I can't have a. Yeah, discourse. he thinks it is so far gone that I cannot interact okay. with this person. And I think that's right. I mean, I think Todd Nancy Coates has some really reasonable uh, viewpoints on race in the U.S. that are not really heard. Uh, in the mainstream mainstream media. I mean, actually, that's not true. I mean, Tony Sukhoz, after publishing Between the World and Me, went through the mainstream media circuit. Uh, but I think it's if we're reasonably trying to talk about uh, race and, and Sam Harris wants to actually present multiple viewpoints that are real, avoiding the most resonant viewpoint yeah. in, in the African-American community, which I think Tony Sukhoz would fall in that, that, that bucket, seems incorrect. Yes. But I think that's a really good point, Monik. Um, what are the limits of the degree to which this group of people advocates for free speech? Because in my mind, people who I actually think are really exemplary at um, advocating free speech are... I actually do think Joe Rogan is pretty good about this, although I'm still curious about... to what Has Joe Rogan ever invited somebody on his podcast that essentially is like a very strong proponent of identity politics in a very traditional way? This is what I, I, I think the answer is no. Okay, so there you go. I don't like, know. I actually don't know about 
that. He says some pretty like pretty far left leaning. I mean, he said he just I just I, maybe not. It's like what I have seen him do. He will take the leftist avatar, so to speak. Yeah, and he will say like in the name of either science because like freaking Eddie Bravo talking about the flat Earth or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah. or it's like or it's like you know vaccines do work or things like that. Yeah, yeah, um, but I think I have to imagine he's had some traditionally leftist. But I mean, like maybe the political views of the comedians he interviews, but. Yeah, maybe not somebody who's like, who, who would you name? Who would you think that would be somebody he should have on well, the show? Well, this, I mean, it's another issue. I think only a few folks that come to mind, like Michael Eric Dyson is one, one yeah. person that I think is interesting. Uh, but this is another issue is that... I thought his debate with Jordan Peterson was a disaster for him, by the way. That's true, yeah. Michael Eric Dyson? Yeah. yeah. It was just so performative. He was just like, he called yeah. him like a white cracker or something at some point. Well, he also said he's just, you're just an angry white man. Yeah, that's what he called him. Yeah. I was like, jeez. Um, yeah, so it was pretty vicious. It wasn't, yeah, he, just, he lost that debate. No ads, dude. No ad homonyms. No ads. Once you go ad homonyms, you lost the debate. The only ads is if you want to sponsor this podcast, please reach Thank out. You. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, no, but it's actually, a, this is the issue where I think the, the, the really radical left is missing hashtag thought leaders right now. They're, they don't have any. I can't think of a single one that has broken through the limelight that can actually talk about these... Th- Talk about the nuance of their viewpoint in a reasonable way does without it, resorting to. Does that count, dude? Yeah, that's what I'm like. like well, Noam Chomsky count. Well, Chomsky's taken this isolationist view. Noam Chomsky is one in Russia. Noam Chomsky. Like, he's he's like, too far out. Well, Noam Chomsky <laughs> actually like says, I don't want to debate with you, Sam Harris. He's like, there's nothing to debate. He's like in an anechoic chamber by himself. <laughs> yeah, and like, actually, that's a great point. I think Chomsky would be one representation of that, but he purposefully does not debate these folks. Also, like, to the degree that I think we talked about earlier, like, whether or not you think it's rightful or, or wrongful, it's like, the amount of lambasting that the that the public institutions or, like, the universities are getting from people like Jordan Peterson and others, whatever you think about it, like, you would think some people would rise up and be like, let's have a debate, man. Like, I am a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm an able-bodied professor, man or woman from this, you know, from this yeah. school, and, like, I would like to talk with you on, like, the stage about, like, what exactly you believe. Like, where is the sort of, maybe somebody would emerge from the radical postmodern neo-Marxist sphere. Right? Yeah. Where are they at? And that's the issue. Like, I, there's no one who is a postmodern neo-Marxist. I don't know about that. I know, yeah, yeah. But like, where, where is anybody who could, who could say I am left very radically right, left? Right, right, right. I don't know if anybody would identify as radically left. Yeah. It is an issue, though. And I think the left needs this, man. Otherwise, the left is in its final throes. I don't know about that. I don't know, man. I, I, think, I think they're dying. I think what, of, what does it mean to die? I think the, the, the... What do you mean by death? <laughs> what do you mean by death? Right? Like, can you transcend death? Can you be reincarnated? I don't know. Well, Cloud Atlas will tell you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great movie. Death is just a door. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I mean, for, for me, it's like, I have always thought of myself as progressive. And the, the issue I have right now is the left has been hijacked by a lot of these folks who treat identity politics as their primary scope. And framework. And part of me wonders how many people who do this, I think there are very legitimate grievances, very legitimate causes. But again, if you go on Twitter, it just seems like a game you're trying to win. It's like, hey, look, Krishna stepped out of line today. Time to roast him. Or like, Monik did something. It's like like this like boom-roasted game. Where's the love, dude? Where's the love? I'm not saying you need love necessarily. You just (laughs) put that force towards, you know, some some cause that will rally, I don't know, like a lot of people. So where do we sum out on the IDW? Good or bad? I think it's I think it's a, I think it's it is a good amorphous structure in terms of I think its constituent parts in my mind like in terms of the conversations that are being had the things that are being explored I think it is a somewhat sad thing that it has to exist because of what it says about the state of rational discourse widely speaking yeah um, and I agree with you that I don't know if it'll last yeah like it's sort of an interesting thing you you fixate on a small group of people 
And if that grows, does it does the label even make sense anymore? Yeah. But the dank web, watch out for the dank web. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Krishna, what do you think? I think I think that it's good to have people who are having uh, intellectual conversations, who are thinking deeply about things, and who are advocating their beliefs and and have divergent beliefs that they all articulate. I think all that's good. I think that the ideological dark web is a group that I am still suspect about whether they really do live up to the supposed principles of being able to be whatever and whenever. I mean, at the beginning of our whole conversation, I talked about how one of the uniting themes was how all of them had run into this clash with uh, people who were maybe critiquing them from the left uh, of where they sat or with the position that they took. I think that, as you mentioned, that, that that might be partially reflective of the blind spots within them, that they aren't at, truly as representative and that maybe in, with regard to some things, they aren't actually discussing every topic, you know, that... that there could be, they, they all are kind of skewed by the personal experience that they've had, which has been traumatic in some of their cases and yeah. has caused them to be extremely bitter towards certain parts of the electoral spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think, like, otherwise, we didn't really mention Dave Rubin, who's part of it, too. And he just seems excited that this thing is, like, it's like a clubhouse. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, we're all in this dark web, guys. They're like, yeah, I guess. And he's so. really lucky he's there, because he shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's a, he's a fair... He's I'm a, not a fair name. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's okay. I think he's milk toast. Is how I just yeah, he's milk toast. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. You have strong feelings. Milk toast. I'm trying to come up with a rhyme, dude, for bars, dude. Can't come up with anything. Let's just cut it. Let's just cut it, dude. No bars. Today. Thank you, Krishna, for joining us. Thanks, Krishna. Thanks for having me. Excellent. That's a wrap.
Consequences. 